You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Well, as Max was saying, this is the middle of Lent, and because of that, we're in a series here on Sunday mornings where we're looking at studying the crucifixion, the cross, and the greater sufferings of God in Christ, and what all that might mean. Lent, of course, is traditionally the time of year when Christians consider, think about the sufferings of Christ, or as some might call it, the sufferings of God in Christ. Our text today comes from Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's the text. What does it mean, though, to pick up your cross and follow Jesus? Well, one of the things I think it means is that originally, being a Christian, being a disciple of Christ, being a follower of Jesus, whatever you want to call it, was not defined by things you believe in your head about him, metaphysically, theologically, supernaturally. But what defined discipleship or faith in Christ originally, I believe, was this idea of sharing in his sufferings, picking up your cross, so to speak, and following him. A disciple shared in the sufferings of their master. It was this, and not correct belief, or correct theology, or correct doctrinal thinking that defined Christian discipleship originally. Now, I need to preface this. I'm, I, I believe this was true for many. <laughs> Probably not all. It's impossible to say that this is what everyone believed or thought back then, because Christians have always thought and believed different things about what it means to be a Christian what it means to have faith in Christ. And the Bible reveals this complexity of thought. The Bible is not univocal and consistent in this regard, or really in much of any regard, which would be an interesting talk for me to give down the road, right, to look at all the different ways that faith in Christ or Christian discipleship is spoken of in the New Testament. But for our purposes today, I want to focus on this on this oft-neglected view that to be a Christian meant to share in the sufferings of Christ as opposed to having the right theological beliefs about him, which is what we've been taught. I don't know about you, but that's what I was taught growing up, what it meant to be a Christian, right? Believing the right things about God, Jesus, and the Bible. Consider that nowhere in the four Gospels, nowhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, do we find Jesus teaching his disciples, you know, the doctrines, like, let's say, the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, you will not find anywhere in the Bible. This surprises a lot of people. Nowhere in the Bible you find the word Trinity or triune. That is, that is a word that the church came up with a few centuries later. 
But nowhere do you find Jesus instructing his disciples on believing the correct things about, you know, the triune Godhead, apparently having the correct theology about the nature of, you know, the Trinity was not necessary in being his disciple. He also never mentioned his immaculate conception. He never taught the virgin birth to his disciples. You don't read the Sermon on the Mount and find Jesus saying, oh, and by the way, I was born of a virgin, and you kind of have to believe in that in order to be my disciple and to be saved from hellfire. And he doesn't say anything about it. Interesting. Nowhere did he teach his disciples about atonement doctrines. What is, we looked at this recently. Meaning nowhere did he, did he talk about, you know, how his future death, uh, you know, and, and their need to believe that his shed blood and death on the cross will somehow appease God's wrath for their sins so that they can go to heaven and not hell when they die. Nowhere does he talk about this. Nowhere. In fact, it's quite clear that even his closest of disciples and friends, that they were terribly confused about his identity and mission. They were terribly confused about it. They didn't have the right, the right theology, and yet they were his disciples, his beloved disciples. They had the wrong beliefs. They lacked good doctrinal thinking, and yet they were his disciples because they shared in his sufferings to some degree, not always. <laughs> they failed in that too. Peter denied knowing him three times at the moment of truth to avoid sharing in his sufferings. In Gethsemane, they all fell asleep while he was sweating drops of blood and crying out to God in despair. Yeah. Disciples failed in this regard too often, but yet they were still his disciples. The bottom line for me in this moment, in this part of my talk, is this. Theological orthodoxy. Theological orthodoxy was not a prerequisite to discipleship in Jesus' day. Theological orthodoxy only became a prerequisite to becoming a Christian centuries later. When the church, and by the church I mean the church bishops of Europe and what was then gosh, Istanbul, Asia Minor, nowadays Turkey, the Church of North Africa, the Church of the Near East gathered together and came up with creeds and doctrines to unify around both theologically and politically because they were being pressured by Constantine and others to do so, to unite the empire under this religious banner called Christianity. The church came up with these this idea that theological orthodoxy was a prerequisite to being a Christian then, you know, three centuries, four centuries after Christ, in an effort to unify the church for both religious and political purposes. And so they created creeds. What is a creed? It's a statement of belief, like the Nicene Creed, which many of you are probably familiar with. And everybody had to confess the creed, which included things about the nature of the Trinity and Jesus' divinity and his virgin birth, and the second coming, it included all this stuff about atonement theories and eschatology, soteriology, all this theological baggage that you had to confess that nobody really understands anyway. Even those of us who went to seminary, anybody who says they really understand that stuff is lying. 
It's like the old, uh, the, well, that's not an old saying, but a quantum physicist will tell you, anybody who says they understand quantum mechanics doesn't understand quantum mechanics. Same thing for all of this theology stuff. Anybody who says they understand the creeds doesn't understand the creeds. All right? It's metaphysics. But nevertheless, the church created these creeds, like the Nicene Creed, that everybody had to intellectually assent to in order to be part of the church. This was not the case originally, not even close to it. It was all a later invention. The very first Christians, the, the very the original disciples of Jesus, and even Jesus himself did not have a creed. They didn't have a creed. They didn't have doctrines you had to subscribe to. To be his disciple, one only had to be willing to follow him and his ways, his teachings on love and justice, bringing good news to the poor, liberating the oppressed, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked. This is what Jesus thought it meant to be his disciple. That was it. Period. Full stop. That was it. Another way of saying this is to say that to be his disciple meant sharing in his sufferings on behalf of the poor and the powerless on behalf of the oppressed, on behalf of those suffering under the rule of unjust powers, both religious and political powers, as many were back then. This is primarily what it meant to be a Christian, to be a disciple of Christ. It was to, this is what it meant to share in the sufferings of Christ. It meant sharing in the sufferings of the so-called least of these, as Christ himself did. I'm getting a lot of my thinking here today from the late Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that great German theologian of the 20th century, of the 1930s and 40s, who knew something about what it meant to share in the sufferings of Christ, as he himself was killed by the Nazis for resisting them and speaking out against them and, of course, participating in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. I think that'll get you in a lot of trouble back then, right? Um, but he did all this because of his Christian convictions. He once said this, it is not the religious act that makes the Christian, but participation in the sufferings of God in the world. Hear that again. It is not the religious act, meaning going to church, believing the right things, etc. It is not the religious act that makes the Christian, but participation in the sufferings of God in the world. What does this mean? Well, he goes on, and this is a long quote. He wrote this while he was in a Nazi prison, by the way. This being caught up into the sufferings of God in Christ takes a variety of forms in the New Testament. It appears in Jesus' table fellowship with the so-called wicked, like the tax collectors and sex workers. It appears in Zacchaeus returning all the money he stole from people, plus four times extra. It's found in the act of the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair and tears, an act that she performed without any confession of sin. It's found in the healing of the sick, in Jesus' acceptance of children. The shepherds, like the wise men from the east, stand at the crib, not as converted sinners, 
but simply because they are drawn to the crib by the star just as they are. The centurion of Capernaum, who makes no confession of sin, is held up as a model of faith. Jesus, we're told, wept at Lazarus's tomb with the rest of the mourners. The eunuch in Acts 8 and Cornelius in Acts 10, they are not standing at the edge of an abyss. And what of Jesus begging his disciples to stay awake and pray with him in Gethsemane during the hour of his greatest need? Finally, consider Joseph of Arimathea and the women at Jesus' tomb. The only thing that is common to all of these is their sharing in the suffering of God in Christ. That is their faith. There is nothing of religious method here. The religious act is always something partial. Faith is something whole, involving the whole of one's life. Jesus called people not to a new religion, but to life. I love that last line. Jesus called people not to a new religion, but to life. Life in the world as it really is. Life as we find it. This is what Christian faith was early on. Bonhoeffer was saying that, that sharing in the sufferings of Christ takes on a variety of forms, but it usually looks like doing something sacrificial by putting oneself in harm's way on behalf of others and by opposing unjust powers like Jesus did. Sharing the sufferings of Christ looks like standing in solidarity with the poor and the oppressed and thereby sharing in their scorn as Christ did. To identify with Christ meant to identify with those who had been labeled subhuman, other than, outcast, unclean, ungodly, unworthy. Being a disciple of Christ meant you were choosing to identify with the rejected and the despised, with those who had been labeled such because of their social, economic, religious, sexual status, gender status. Being a disciple of Christ meant you were choosing to identify with them and stand in harm's way with them. Because this is who Jesus identified with, and this is who he suffered for. And all those who follow in whose footsteps will pick up that cross and suffer too. And it was this, it was this, not right metaphysical beliefs and theology that defined Christian discipleship originally. Again, this is, a, this is a very different understanding of Christianity than the one most of us were raised on. Very different. The definition of Christianity we were given was doctrinal and creedal and confessional. You had to confess the right beliefs, right? It was concerned with believing the right metaphysical and theological propositions and had little or nothing to do with this idea of sharing in Christ's sufferings on behalf of the poor and the oppressed. Even now, I think many of us post-evangelicals here, most of us wonder if we're still a Christian at all, because the way Christianity is primarily defined is confessional and creedal. 
And we wonder if we're a Christian at all because this is now our faith, meaning love and justice has become our faith. Caring about inequality and injustice has become our faith. Standing in solidarity with the outcast and the broken has become our faith. That, and you know, maybe we're still a mystic, right? It's not to say that we're atheists, but we adhere more to a kind of mysticism. And we wonder, because this is now our faith, are we still a Christian? And let me reassure you, if you still want to know, if you still want the label, you can have it, because this is what Christianity, I believe, was early on. You don't have to have the label. Get rid of the label. It's just a label. Jesus wasn't a Christian. Jesus was a Jew. He didn't name the movement. The movement was named a decade or so after he was gone. You can just say, I don't know what I am, but I like Jesus try to follow him. That works. Don't call yourself a Christian. That's fine. Or do. Whatever. So many of us no longer fit into traditional Christianity, right? And that's okay. We no longer fit into the traditional religious construct that Christianity became. But rest assured, neither, neither did Jesus. He didn't fit into even his first century Jewish religious construct very well. That's why he caught hell from the religious authorities for it. And so I maintain that this too, this too is a way of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. In other words, deconstruction is a way of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. I know that's a buzzword, deconstruction. Some of you might be wondering what that means. We can talk more about that later if you want. You could say that Jesus was a deconstructionist who challenged the conservative and rigid interpretations of Scripture that the religious authorities of his day used to oppress and control people with. He deconstructed that. Jesus deconstructed not just their conservative and rigid interpretations of Scripture, but he deconstructed their rigid and conservative understandings of God, this idea that God is a God of religious law. He said, no, no, he's not. He's a God of pure love, pure love, who stands with the broken and the oppressed and admonishes those who use his name in vain by using the name of God to harm others. Jesus would quote the, the Torah. He would say, you have heard it was said, and he'd quote Leviticus. This comes out of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, love your enemies. Don't return evil for evil. What Moses wrote in Leviticus, Jesus says, that's not the real heart and will of God. This is just what Moses thought. What? If that's not deconstruction, I don't know what is. He says, yeah, that's in the scriptures, so what? God's a God of love, calls us to love our enemies and not return violence with violence and hate with hate. And they didn't like hearing that, some. He deconstructed it. He revealed that God was not a God of religious law, like many thought, but a God of love who defied religious law. This, of course, got Jesus into a lot of trouble with the religious authorities, and he suffered greatly for it, as does everyone 
who deconstructs and defies the oppressive religious traditions they were born into. This too is what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ and to be a Christian or to be a Christ follower. Deconstruction is a way of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Deconstruction is a kind of Christian faith. Anyone who is estranged from family for defying their oppressive religious ideas, as so many of us have experienced, anyone who has lost a job in the church for it, as many have, anyone who has been labeled a heretic and a hell-bound sinner for these truths, they too are suffering with Christ in the world. They too are carrying their cross, the cross of a crucified and deconstructed God. And as we turn towards the Lord's Supper this morning, I want us to consider how this, this holy sacrament functions as a way of reminding us to share in the sufferings of Christ. Here we find the emblems of Jesus' suffering, right? His broken body and shed blood from the cross, symbolized in the cracker and grape juice, right? The cracker is his body. The grape juice is his blood. Here he is broken for the poor and the powerless. Here he is broken for the cause of love and justice. Here he is broken for defying oppressive religious constructs, for oppressive religious traditions and bad theology. And by consuming this sacrament, we are saying that we too will share in his sufferings and be broken for what broke him. Here at Central, we serve this to each other. And everybody is, the, the, the table of the Lord is open and free to all, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you believe or don't believe. If you want to partake, you are invited to partake. And we serve this to each other. You just take one of those gluten-free crackers and you dip it in the cup and receive it and serve the person next to you. We believe this too is what it means to embody being Christ in the world today for each other. Be blessed now in this. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. Thanks, guys. Sounds like my microphone's a little ringy. Cool, cool. All right, questions, comments um, about what we're talking about today regarding the sufferings of God in Christ and what it means to be a Christian or a disciple of Christ. What does it mean to have faith, I guess? What what thoughts or questions did this raise for you, if any? How do you define your Christian faith today, maybe, if at all? Have you abandoned? Yeah, there's one.
Yeah, um, if it's okay, um, yeah, use the mic because there's, um, there's a podcast and it'll uh, be on that. Yeah, okay. If you're comfortable. Um, I guess the I'm maybe being a little caught up on terminology, but the sure. word suffering of I was raised Catholic. It was all about suffering and fear yeah. and you know all of that. Right. Um, but what do you? What does that mean to what me? Suffering. Say? Yeah, suffering of our job is to emulate the suffering of. Yeah, Jesus. yeah. Well, in that talk, you know, I I defined it. I think as this idea of, you know, I I I think it's about trying to stand in solidarity with. Right. specifically those on the margins in our society today, caring about the concerns of those who are suffering. Right. Um, and so in a sense, you know, we can't like choose to, like, it's hard for me to choose to suffer the way somebody who's suffering who frankly can't pay their bills because I can pay my bills. Or it's hard for me to, you know, um, understand what it's like to be, you know, a gay person who has been, um, shunned by their family because I'm not gay and have not been shunned by my family for that reason. Does that make sense? But we can choose to stand up for them and stand with them in different ways so that we are at least, I guess, in a sense, sharing in their sufferings on some level. So that's how, it's a good question. Uh, that's how I'm thinking of it here. Okay. Um, yeah, that yeah, makes there's total different, sense. There's different levels of it, obviously, different ways of, of doing this, right? Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. That makes perfect sense. Thank okay, you. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, I'll take the mic now. Yeah, somebody else. Yeah, Emily. There you are. No. Um, I think I, I was thinking actually this morning, so it's funny that we are talking about this, um, that... I love the songs that we sing here because they're not, I think glorifying and worshiping God's name is hard to do as a human who was put here and suffers because of free will and stuff like that. Like sometimes glorifying is hard and that sometimes gets people through, right? Which I get, but I think here the songs that we sing are the songs that someone might listen to if they feel alone or if they feel oppressed or if they feel vulnerable. No, that's good. I, I, that's Max knows. I mean, that's, that's why we sing what we sing here and now we don't sing traditional worship songs. We want to sing songs about life. And we bring it here to share in it with. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes the songs are often melancholy because they're about, you know, dealing with, you know, the sufferings of life, you know, the fears, you know, the joys, you know, and, and the sorrows and, you know, giving that space here is really sacred for us. And doing that, you know, is something I feel like a lot of churches won't do because it's uncomfortable to acknowledge because we all grew up, not all of us, but a lot of us grew up in churches that were happy clappy, right? You come to church and you're supposed to be like all joyful and singing. And uh -huh. meanwhile, your life's a mess and, right. and there's not like space given to acknowledge the uncertainties and the failures and the finitude of life because you're a Christian and everything's supposed to be okay, you know? But you're also supposed to be a broken person, which is why you seek. Right. You right. know what I mean? And so I feel like here recognizing i think the sufferings like also to answer your question too from my point of view is like 
we all suffer on our own, right? Like we all have our own sufferings just from living yeah. life and how the world has turned out, right? Like we're all vulnerable and oppressed at some point or another, right? So if we come here and open that up, that to me was the whole message. Like yeah. we're all sitting here being the the vulnerable, the oppressed and, the, you know, and just like these songs, like how am I ever going to get by all by myself? Yeah. You don't have to. Yeah, that's really good. Thanks, Emily. Yeah. I, I knew it was Leanne next. I just uh -huh. walked over because I thought she's Yes, backing. yes, yes. <laughs> this is how we do it here. Excellent. Um, just going off, just because it goes off of that. So I went to a Lutheran church growing up, which did a lot right. We had a female pastor. Like there was a lot of good stuff about yeah. it. But I went to contemporary service and there was a band called Faith X. And they sang- Wait, Faith X? Like faith and then like the letter X. Ooh, like that was the name of the band. That's awesome. They were all middle-aged. So like super lots of like, yeah, trying to be boomer edgy. Um, it was we're so, we're so cynical. We're so cynical. I know. They were very nice people who were very good at singing and playing. I love it. But I just love Faith X. Um, and it was, you know, I just remember the songs were very like it. I think even as a kid. The idea of worshiping God, I kept thinking in my head, like I couldn't get out of my head, like God's fine. Like, why do I need to worship God? Like he's like he in my head it was still here. I was like, he's doing great. <laughs> like he's God. <laughs> like, I don't know if he needs this. But he needs you to acknowledge his greatness. Yeah, I could. I never made sense. So I love this approach so much more because I never understood worshiping God. Just really never got it. Yeah. Yeah, well, that plays into suffering in my mind too, because that expression, you know, that that need to worship God, you know, hands raised, eyes closed, that was always a form of catharsis or kind of relief. We come into the building with our problems. And this, I don't mean to demean this. There's something actually really therapeutic about that. And frankly, we all still do that just in different ways. We might go to a rock show and lose ourselves in the in the music as a way of forgetting about the fact that, you know, I might be losing my job or I'm struggling at home with this. I have anxiety, you know, um, losing yourself, you know, having an escape. That was what that was. Of course, that was unacknowledged because of, if to acknowledge that, like, you know, basically this is a form of catharsis, you know, that deconstructs that and that was impossible in that setting. But, um, you know, it's like going to the bar with your friends and having a couple of drinks and listening to a singer songwriter, you know, um, maybe play music about heartbreak. I mean, that can be very cathartic and beautiful. And that's kind of Pete Rollins uses that example, stealing it from him. But that's sort of the the atmosphere that I think we seek to have here with some of the music and the talks. It's like we want to give that space. We kind of want to be like the local pub where people come and yeah, they laugh, they have a good time, but they also hear music that lets them reflect on their troubles and in that way experience some relief and some community in that, you know, some some joint, you know, community and healing in those experiences. Yeah. Yeah, real quick. Um, I think that's all, and I'm not taking away from that. I think that's all really great, the catharsis. And I'm not in no way saying worshiping God is bad right, or right. Yeah. I do it in my own way by going hiking. Like it's just different. Yeah. But I think the focus was so like upward, like yes. up, up, up. Yeah. And there was never down. Like no one never, wanted to look down. No. No. You're absolutely right. And uh it, it was all based on this theology of God being sort of like this huge ego in the sky <laughs> that needed us to like fawn over him and, you know, you know, bow down before him as a way of um, 
you know, feeding his, his, his need to be worshiped, which is really kind of gross. And, you know, but that was the theology. God deserves your praise. He deserves your admiration and worship. And, and you need to fawn over him because he is worthy and you are not. And, oh my gosh, it's like, this is not a healthy being that I'm, uh, you know, doing this. This is a megalomaniac, apparently, you know. God yeah. is Regina George. What's God is who? Regina George. There you, I don't know who that is, but that's- Mean but, Girls. There you go. Yeah. <clears throat> pick your pick your megalomaniac. Yeah. No, it's just really unhealthy in that regard. But the, the catharsis needed um, to lose yourself and to find moments of escape, that, that can be healthy, you know, but- it's complicated. Yeah. No, it's a really good, good example. It's gets all goes back to suffering and how we deal with suffering as people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Justin, would you mind passing that back to Justin? <clears throat> um, thanks. Uh, thanks for, um, all your, um, uh, yeah, sharing your your thoughts, your ideas, your perspective. Um, I just it you know makes me think about a lot of things. And in a continuation, I guess, of some of these thoughts about suffering. I don't know. I I don't know that I have well formed thoughts here, but I know that I've spent a lot of time in churches where. Um, a lot has been made of what Jesus said, I, something along the lines of, blessed are you when you are persecuted uh, because of me. And and a lot, I, I guess, you know, I, I've seen a lot of um, Christians, a lot of churches hold on to that, like we're persecuted, we're oppressed, and maybe in some ways they were, maybe in some ways they weren't. And I guess I, I just, I, th I think I spent a fair amount of time trying to understand if the way I see things is correct. And may maybe that's kind of an unknowable thing. Like, is my perspective correct? Is my perspective incorrect? In which ways is it correct or incorrect? But um, I, I guess I just wonder how can we know if, like, are we actually suffering? Are we actually being persecuted? Uh, are we being persecuted for the right reasons, if, if that makes sense? Um, I don't know. I, I just, um, wh where are you ended with it? Like, it just reminds me of, of hearing so many, um, so many Christians, like, almost hold on to that, how do I put it? Persecution complex? Yeah, yes, right, exactly. Um, even when maybe they're, um, they're, they're not, uh, they're not, they're not maybe in line with what Jesus talked about in terms of serving the oppressed and, and they are living comfortable lives and, you know, driving to church in their Hummer, but because people in the news media are, you know, saying, I don't know, they're, they're holding on to, and, and so, you know, I don't know. I, 
I I'm, have, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, I, I understand. I, what I'm sorry. Asking. I'm not. I, no, I'm not being very clear. No, but perfect. No, it's, it's just I, I find it hard to understand. Sort of hard to judge whether you know the kind of suffering that I'm taking on or someone is taking on is actually suffering for Jesus yeah, exactly. or, or, or if it's sort of delusional, I, yeah. I guess that's where I'm sort of coming to the way in, I'm going to share with you my opinion and my reading of how persecution complex works in American Christianity today. Uh, it's the, 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 the American evangelical, and I'm speaking as a former one, um, believes they are being persecuted because they are not getting everything they want. Meaning um, the, the culture, the society is not what they want it to be. Meaning that it's allowing gay folk to get rights. It's allowing, um, you know, socialism. <laughs> I'm putting it in scare quotes because we don't live in a socialist society, but th they're concerned that there are non-Christian economic and cultural practices Feminism, uh, socialism, Marxism, the gay agenda, as they would call it, are given more and more space in the public square, more and more influence at different levels of government, state and federal, whatever, more and more of that is being allowed. And so the church, meaning conservative Christianity, is becoming more and more marginalized or made irrelevant in those conversations because it's rightfully so being seen as regressive and oppressive uh and and so yeah they're feeling they're feeling persecuted because they're not getting what they want anymore they want to go back to the america of the 19th century or the america of the early mid 20th century they want they want leave it to beaver they want the 1950s right and they're not going to get it anymore and they interpret that as being persecuted this is my reading of it as a former evangelical um and i don't want to start naming politicians that feed into that uh mindset um, but you can probably guess who they are who play on that persecution complex and tell American Christians, you are being persecuted because gay folk are getting rights. You are being persecuted because, you know, black black folk are being have that racism is being acknowledged as system as systemic or something like that. Um, so from from are there examples of Christians being persecuted for simply being Christians in the world today? Sure. But let's be clear, the kind of persecution that Jesus suffered and that um, his disciples, I, I think what the kind of persecution Jesus was concerned about suffering was the kind of suffering and the persecution you, you, you get for standing up for the poor and the powerless, for taking the side of the marginalized and the oppressed, for standing against unjust powers that are harming people, like literally harming people with economic practices or or. or what do you call it? Bigoted practices because that person's a Samaritan or that because that person is part of the peasant class. Jesus stood against that stuff and he incurred the wrath of the powers that be. He was persecuted for it. He was persecuted by the religious authorities because they were teaching about a God of religious law, this kind of oppressive, vindictive God of you know certain passages out of the Old Testament. Jesus talked about the prophets of the Old Testament and how they spoke about a God of justice and love and he was persecuted for it. That's the kind of Christian persecution Jesus was talking about. Not, you know, standing up for 
uh, or standing up for the rich and standing up for, you know, um, basically privilege and power and, and being told, no, it's time for somebody else to have a turn. That's not the kind of suffering he was talking. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. Yeah. That was a long answer to your question. Um, other thoughts today? Yeah, in, Beth, would you mind uh, passing the mic to Beth? Thank you. In in the conversations about persecution, I always, I think about how Andre Henry talks about it, especially when we talk about Christians here in the United States. And he points out that if you are a group in power, you cannot be persecuted. Like you are the perpetrators of persecution. So when people talk about Christian persecution here in the United States, especially, it's like, that is just not even a thing in our context. Like you said, of course, in other places, in other contexts, but um, yeah, the way persecution gets talked about when it's talked about by people who hold power and control in any specific setting, like the term doesn't even apply. Yeah. The idea that white Christian men are persecuted for sure. in this society, when the society for the last how many generations has been, it still is, look at Congress being run by pretty much white Christian men. I mean, come on. You think about even the way we think it was, uh, I forget which comedian made this joke, but he was talking about how, you know, the, the idea of Christians being persecuted is ridiculous. When even the way that we measure time is based upon, you know, AD and BC, <laughs> like, you know, Anno Domini in the year of our Lord, you know, it's the think about what year it is. And you're going to tell me that, that Christians are being persecuted when they basically be running the show for how many centuries? Come on. Anyway, Beth. Well, I, I think what I'm going to offer fits really well with what Bob said, and it's in response to Justin's kind of search for criteria to understand, like, what kind of suffering is real suffering. And uh, when we look at why Jesus was crucified, you know, at the time, he wasn't a person with great power. He was a, a person who was going against you know, the understanding of who's in charge and he had potential power, so he was cut short. And I, I think for myself, when I'm trying to decide how to, to judge who's on the side of, of God, or who's doing, who's following Jesus the way Jesus probably meant, I, I think we can trust our guts. I trust my gut. I trust my spirit to call BS. Like when I hear BS in the form of politics or in the form of, you know, we're suffering because gay people get rights, that's BS. And I just go around it. Just just let it be. I, I have only a certain amount of energy to spend, and I'm not going to spend it trying to undo someone else's problem. You know, someone else's, I think, wrong spirited understanding of being a Christian in regards to suffering, I think about, you know, Christ on the cross. I was listening this morning to Thomas Keating, K-E-A-T-I-N-G, anything on YouTube, listen to him. He's a, a monk. He was talking about the cross as a symbol of the human condition. And, you know, it has this vertical, we're here, we, we know there's something better. We're spiritual people, we, we long for more. And we have this horizontal groundedness as humans that we can't get out of. You know, so we have this tension, right? 
And he talked about the word Abba and Christ using it as Christ Jesus as a human using that word daddy, Abba. From a human perspective, the closest he could be connected to the divine consciousness. He was always in line with this divine consciousness and making the right choices as far as we can tell. And then he gets on the cross and he says, Eloi, Elo, lama sabachthani. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that deepest, deepest suffering, he's, his faith keeps him in line with the divine consciousness. He doesn't say, I give up on you. I don't believe in you. You're not here. It's, and, and for us, in our suffering, I think if for myself, I'll speak for myself, I look at that human response to an actual human body on the cross, a human who's in line with the divine consciousness at all times, who can still say, I am so low here, and yet I know you're there. We are never alone, like the lyrics. So I'll leave it at that. Thanks, Beth. Good stuff. Somebody else today. Has anyone disavowed the label Christian? Yes. And are you willing to share why? You don't have to. I'm just, I just love, cool. <laughs> Since you raised your hand, I'm going to ask you. Um, I've been on both sides of the fence, so maybe I'll change my mind at some point, but I just think, um, and I respect anyone's choice either way. Um, for me, the moniker is so aligned with what I see as harm and oppressiveness um, that unfortunately to me at this moment, it feels tainted. And I understand also the idea of reclaiming it and saying like, no, you can't, you can't own it. So I understand that side of it too. But I think um, for me, like if someone were to ask me, I'd be, I'd say, I do my best to follow Jesus of Nazareth. Like that's the way I would, it's more of like a verb. Like I do my best to follow this, like in my mind, this spiritual sage and this person who aligns me with the divine. Um, and that to me feels more active and also um, accurate than like the noun, I am a Christian. Good stuff. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, Justin, would you, thanks, Leon. Um, yeah, I've also, uh, I would say at some point, um, sort of separated myself from the moniker of Christian, maybe for a different reason, um, because well, I, you know, I was raised Christian and, um, and, uh, my dad is a pastor and a missionary and such. Um, and, uh, I would say, I don't know, somewhere in college or after college, um, I just felt uncertain about a lot of things and just like the inability to know what's true. Um, I mean, which I'd been struggling with even when I was in high school and such, but, um, and when I would talk to people about, just my questions and uncertainties, you know, some people would point out that like, okay, I mean, it sounds like you're agnostic, right? You just uh, don't know. And I resisted that term for a long time because to me that meant like, I don't know and I don't care. And the first part of that statement was true, but the second part was not, you know, something that I, I did care a lot about 
but I just couldn't come to. And so eventually I did, you know, sort of embrace that agnostic term because it's like, well, it, you know, just by the definition of the word, that's, so it seemed like that, that, um, yeah, just by the proper use of language, I, I identify it as agnostic rather than Christian. Um, but I mean, I, you know, yeah, I'm in an interesting place now. My my daughter, my older daughter, uh, was actually, um, you know, my parents are Christian and my family's Christian and such. And, you know, a few years ago, my daughter said she was Christian. You know, she just decided, you know, and I'm, you know, she, what that her journey and what she believes is her journey, and I'm happy to support it. Um, but uh, but yeah, and so now, you know, there are a lot of things that I see a lot of benefits to being part of a, a church, a faith community, and such. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know oh, where good. I am, but thank um, you for sharing that. Yeah, you don't have to know. I think that's yeah. that's the beauty of it. Like, I'm I. I just love everything you said and it's just, you don't have to define it. It's just cool to hear you say, this is what I think right now. Maybe I'll change my mind in a week, you know, um, because that's beautiful. That's life. We're in a journey. We're growing, you know, um, who we are today is not necessarily who we are tomorrow. And we can, we can hold space for that. That's beautiful. You know, I, I'm just astonished that, you know, we were so many of us, I have to always remember, this isn't true of everybody. So many of us were raised in churches that taught us who you, who you are at 15, what you believe at 15 has to be what you believe at 15. Where else in life does that work? You know, it's kind of like, what? I can't change my mind at all about, especially these incredibly abstract ideas about God and the nature of reality. I can't grow at what I believe at five and 15 has to be what I think at 50. What are you talking? Yeah, Laura. Yeah. Hi. I just, along those lines, I was just thinking a lot about this because being raised, I was immersed in Catholicism, not- Say that raised. again? I was immersed in Catholicism. I was, okay. you know, years and years and years. Yeah. And anytime, and I was a child, you're a child, you think differently and believe everything they're telling you. So when they tell you God hears and knows and sees you and everything you're doing, I walked around in fear. And when I had my doubts, when a little doubt would enter my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, erase that because God hears me and I'm going to go to hell. So it's, it's for real. I mean, it's some, it's some weird, like mind stuff and I even feel it's it's so conditioned the age that I'm at now and seeing the truth and seeing things I do have that still still in there that little like what if I'm wrong yes. what if he hears me what you know yes. it's really hard it's really I'm right there with you yeah and we were raised in this which means we were literally programmed our neural network up there we were literally programmed with this anxiety it's like a ghost that mm -hmm. haunts us um yeah. and we just you know Sometimes I say, hi, ghosts. And I just, I know you're there, you know, and I, I can't get rid of you. So I'm just going to have to live with you. And, you know, that helps me with the anxiety a little bit. But yeah, sometimes I'm like, am I going to hell? Oh my, I'm like, come on, you know, but that ghost, um, we're haunted houses, mm -hmm. you know, and to one, we all are. I was thinking one degree or another with different things. Yeah. You know? I was thinking of a story. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. There was a time, I don't even know how old I was. And I ate a hot dog on Friday during Lent. Yeah. 
That was a I biggie. Was gone. I had to go say goodbye to my parents. Oh I'm my like, gosh. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's we, we can laugh about it. That's good. But religious religious trauma syndrome is what it's called now. It's a real thing. And uh, don't be afraid of seeing a therapist. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really hard to pretend you have everything together all the time. And that's, I yeah. feel like, what Christianity was for me growing up. It's you cannot show your true colors. You cannot be who you are. You cannot make mistakes. You cannot, you know... Um, it, it's, it's a level that no one can live up to yeah. and trying to pretend that you always have it right. Or that if something comes in, you've got to push it out really fast or else it then defines whether you'll go to heaven or hell for eternity. It's like that power and control is really gross. And it's what they did to all of us and wired our brains. Cause now we're this age going, oh my gosh, am I wrong? Is there, there's a stitch still in there that goes well, what if I go to hell, you know, which is just unbelievable. But I, I also think from something earlier is the worshiping and, and speaking in tongues and hands raised and cl uh, closed eyes and that it's like, I also kind of see that as like a part of spiritual bypass. It's, it's, you show up as a broken person. And once you've glorified, you are no longer broken. You're put together and you walk out. I'm, I'm a new person this week. That's not real. It's just not. Just like not being saved means you're a whole different person now and all your behaviors and your thoughts and your actions are completely different. It's not a magic thing. So it's just, you know, they they do this to control us and that's all there is to it. They want you to be a certain way. They want the world to live a certain way, to believe a certain way, to act a certain way. And we don't do that. Therefore, they point a finger at us and go, well, you guys are the wrong ones. This is often like group therapy here on yeah. Sunday mornings. This is like a recovery group. Um, so, I, but we need to realize, you know, that not everybody has this story and your story, whatever that is, is also held here um, with with um, just a lot of graciousness and um, just love. So, um, but yeah, let's uh, let's let's end there today. Really great conversation per usual. Thank you so much for just engaging in this because we. It's really about us learning from each other. And that's that's a beautiful thing, I think, about this community. But let's let's conclude as we always do by by coming together with this joint benediction. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Go in peace, my friends.